Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of War and Peace. Book 4, Chapter 1. What a great start to Book 4. Rostov coming home to the Rostov household and just everyone so happy to see him back. Gave me the warm and fuzzies. Um, Rostov seems quite mixed on his feelings for Sonia. On one side, he seems to not love her all that much and is more just talking himself into loving her. However, when he meets her in the drawing room, he blushes and then is unsure about how to interact with her. What do you think his real feelings are about her and what will happen between them moving forward? Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, He's had a little uh, taste of, of the wider world, you know, and not even in a romantic sense of like seeing other women or meeting other people, just seeing what he can do out there in the world. So I guess maybe coming back, the thought of um, staying with her seems maybe mundane or like, you know, a bit like Prince Andre, his sentiment of, um, or his original sentiment. I guess he's turned the other way by now and he's starting to think that all he needs in his life is a big blue sky and he's happy. But uh, Rostov is sort of thinking the other. By the way, today's episode is brought to you by a cup of coffee, which I'm enjoying very much. Um, Do you think this chapter felt different to previous chapters? What does it have that previous chapters perhaps didn't? Interesting question. Um, Warren Kavoffi said to that question, I thought this was a nice change of pace after all the war parts we've seen. I'm hoping we have a long stretch of society chapters ahead of us. Also, Austerlitz is almost 1,000 miles, 1,800 kilometers from Moscow. I'm wondering how long Nikolai and Denisov's journey took. Wow, that is a long way. Um, Eliza, one Eliza, sorry, says, I don't know why I'm struggling with the war sections. I read the 19th chapter Waterloo section just fine last year. My leading theory is I like romanticism more than realism. Um... Warren Kovofi also says, I'm slightly confused by the conversation between Nikolai and Natasha in regards to Sonia. Was this a ploy of reverse psychology by Natasha, basically saying he can give up on the promise to marry Sonia in the hopes that Nikolai blurbs out that he will stay committed to her? That's what I'm thinking, but I'm getting thrown off by Nikolai thinking himself I should remain free. Now, I think he said that he wants to stay with her, and then Natasha said, no, you can't say that. Something like that. Because then it'll just seem like something, something. Like, we wanted you to say that. I don't know. There was a lot of, like, double bluffing going on. And I think Nikolai has gone through a variety of experiences while abroad, and likely his initial attachment to Sonia, despite her beauty, just isn't as strong. I think it's understandable that two people that young, who got to that long, who go that long without seeing one another, don't have a high probability of staying together. I don't know. What about the old absence makes the heart grow fond... thongs Samantha Cruz said I think Nikolai will always be slightly smitten with her as they were each other's first loves whether they continue being romantically involved is something I'm interested in seeing but I do hope he branches out in dating just to make the story interesting this chapter felt different in a couple of ways for one because of all the joy and happiness and family everything seemed warm and happy which is in stark contrast to the Austerlitz chapters Additionally, it seems that parts of the house are not in tip-top shape, which might infer money troubles with the Rostovs, just my guessing though. 
Yeah, I did notice that as well. There was like two or three mentions of things in disrepair. And I wasn't sure if that's what they were getting at or if it was more of like a hinting that it was like um, that they're kind of old money, you know, like they are not old money. What's the word? Like it's their home and they've been there for generations. And that's why it's like, you know, there's bits that he recognized the disrepair of them. Um, of those parts of the building as in like that's what made it feel homely to him you know what I mean like you know when there's like a squeaky step in your household in your family home and you you know that squeaky step and it's kind of like even though technically it's a fault in the staircase to you it's all just sort of part of home I thought maybe that was the vibe he was going for Corsio said have you noticed the time warp the novel starts in July 1805. That's the very first chapter. This means that the name day party of Rostov's took place on the 8th of September 1805, and that's St. Natalia's Day according to the Orthodox Church calendar. Nikolai joined the army soon after that. Today's chapter takes place at the beginning of 1806, so no more than a few months could pass, yet the author mentions a year and a half of Nikolai's absence, and Natasha is two years older. Um, wow, okay. That's really confusing. Four lost souls in a bowl set. I definitely noticed that. Also, it's happened when Natasha was 13 and change. And now, just two months later, she's 15. Hmm. Okay. That is really confusing. I am so confused by that. I ne- I didn't notice that, but now I'm really confused. Um, well... I'd love to get a better answer on that. I'm going to tag in um, one of the pros. I'm going to tag in Brian E. Denter, e. Denton. Uh, how do you tag someone in? User Brian E. Denton. Have you noticed this? Or have an explanation? Actually, that kind of makes it sound like I'm saying it's Brian's fault. <laughs> you know, what's the explanation? How do you explain this, Brian? Um, yeah, interesting. All right. We love your insight on it. Okay, continuing. Let's read the next chapter, shall we? Let's see if Brian can respond to that um, little query there. Hopefully, Brian is... um. Well, he's my go-to war and peace expert. If you're not reading war, um, Brian's daily war and peace accompany blog, he's got one for every single chapter. They're linked in the subreddit every day, and um, they're brilliant. They really open up the each chapter to sort of some um, on a deeper level to almost like a um. I don't know, I was going to say psychological, but that's not the word I'm looking for. What's that other thing? Philosophical. That's the word I was looking for. On a philosophical level, he delves into each chapter. It's really cool. Um, Chapter two goes like this. On his return to Moscow from the army, Nikolai Rostov was welcomed by his home circle as the best of sons, a hero and their darling Nikolenka by his relations as a charming, attractive and polite young man by his acquaintances as a handsome lieutenant of hussars, 
a good dancer, and one of the best matches in the city. Damn, Nicholas, moving up in the world. By the way, this is the more translation today. The Rostovs knew everybody in Moscow. The old count had money enough that year, as all his estates had been remortgaged, and so Nicholas, acquiring a trotter of his own, very stylish riding breeches of the latest cut, such as no one else had yet in Moscow, and boots of the latest fashion, with extremely pointed toes and small silver spurs, passed his time very gaily. After a short period of adapting himself to the old conditions of life, Nicholas found it very pleasant to be at home again. He felt that he had grown up and matured very much. His despair at failing in a scripture examination, his borrowing money from Gavril to pay a sleigh driver, his kissing Sonia on the sly, he now recalled all this as childishness he had left immeasurably behind. Now he was a lieutenant of hussars in a jacket laced with silver and wearing the cross of St. George awarded to soldiers for bravery in action and in the company of well-known elderly and respected racing men was training a trotter of his own for a race. He knew a lady on one of the boulevards whom he visited of an evening. He led the mazurka at the Arkhorov's Ball, talked about the war with Field Marshal Kamensky, visited the English club, and was on intimate terms with the colonel of 40 to whom Denisov had introduced him. His passion for the emperor had cooled somewhat in Moscow, but still, as he did not see him and had no opportunity of seeing him, he often spoke about him and about his love for him, letting it be understood that he had not told all and that there was something in his feelings for the emperor not everyone could understand, and with his whole soul he shared the adoration then common in Moscow for the emperor, who was spoken of as the angel incarnate. During Rostov's short stay in Moscow before joining the army, he did not draw closer to Sonia, but rather drifted away from her. She was very pretty and sweet, and evidently deeply in love with him, but he was at the period of youth when there seems so much to do that there is no time for that sort of thing, and a young man fears to bind himself and prizes his freedom, which he needs for so many other things. When he thought of Sonia during this stay in Moscow, he said to himself, Ah, there will be, and there are many more such girls somewhere whom I do not yet know. There will be time enough to think about love when I want to, but now I have no time. Besides, it seemed to him that the society of women was rather derogatory to his manhood. He went to balls and into ladies' society, and with affectionate, sorry, affectation of doing so against his will. The races, the English club, sprees with Denisov and visits to a certain house that was another matter and quite the thing for a dashing young hussar. At the beginning of March, old Count Ilya Rostov was very busy arranging a dinner in honour of Prince Bagration at the English club. The Count walked up and down the hall in his dressing gown giving orders to the club steward and to the famous, famous Feoctist, the club's head cook about asparagus, fresh cucumbers, strawberries, veal, and fish for this dinner. The Count had been a member and on the committee of the club from the day it was founded. To him the club entrusted the arrangement of the festival in honour of Bagration, for few men knew so well how to arrange a feast on an open-handed, hospitable scale, and still fewer men would be so able and willing to make up out of their own resources what might be needed for the success of the feat. 
The club cook and the steward listened to the Count's orders with pleased faces, for they knew that under no other management could they so easily extract a good profit for themselves from a dinner costing several thousand roubles. Well then, mind and have the cook, have the cock's comb in the turtle soup, you know. Shall we have three cold dishes then, asked the cook. The Count considered. We can't have less. Yes, three. The mayonnaise, that's one, said he, bending down a finger. Then am I to order those large sterlets, asked the steward. Yes, it can't be helped if they won't take less. Ah, dear me, I was forgetting. We must have another entree. Goodness gracious, he clutched at his head. Who is going to get me the flowers? Dimitri. Ah, Dimitri, gallop off to our Moscow estate, he said, to the factorum, factotum, who appeared at his call. Hurry off and tell Maxim, the gardener, to set the serfs to work. Say that everything out of the hothouses must be brought here, well wrapped up in felt. I must have 200 pots here on Friday. Having given several more orders, he was about to go to his little countess to have a rest, but remembering something else of importance, he returned again, called back the cook and the club steward, and again began giving orders. A light footstep and the clinking of spurs was heard at the door, and the young count, handsome, rosy, with a dark little moustache, evidently rested and well and made sleeker by his easy life in Moscow, entered the room. Ah, my boy, my head's in a whirl, said the old man with a smile, as if he felt a little confused before his son. Now, if you would only help a bit, I must have singers too. I shall have my own orchestra, but... Shouldn't we get the gypsy singers as well? You military men like that sort of thing. Really, Papa? I believe Prince Bagration worried himself less before the Battle of Schongraburn than you do now, said his son with a smile. The old count pretended to be angry. Yes, you talk, but try it yourself. And the count turned to the cook, who, with a shrewd and respectful expression, looked observantly and sympathetically at the father and son. What have the young people come to nowadays, eh, Fechtist? said he, laughing at us laughing at us old fellows. That's so, Your Excellency. All they have to do is to eat a good dinner, but providing it and serving it all up, that's not their business. That's it, that's it, exclaimed the Count, and gaily, seizing his son by both hands, he cried, Now I've got you, so take the sleigh and pair at once, and go to Bezikov's, and tell him Count Ilya has sent you to ask for strawberries and fresh pineapples. We can't get them from anyone else. He's not there himself, so you'll have to go in and ask the princesses. And from there, go on to Rasgulaye, the coachman Ip- Ipatka knows, and look up the gypsy Ilyushka, the one who danced at Count Orlov's, you remember, in a white Cossack coat, and bring him along to me. And am I to bring the gypsy girls along with him? asked Nicholas, laughing. Dear, dear. At that moment, with noiseless footsteps and with a businesslike, preoccupied yet meekly Christian look which never left her face, Anna Mikhailovna entered the hall. Though she came upon the count in his dressing gown every day, he invariably became confused and begged her to excuse his costume. No matter at all, my dear count, she said, meekly closing her eyes, but I'll go to Bezikov's myself. Pierre has arrived, and now we shall get anything we want from his hothouses. I have to see him in any case. He has forwarded me a letter from Boris. Thank God, Boris is now on the staff. The Count was delighted at Anna Mikhailovna's, taking upon herself one of his commissions, and ordered a the small closed carriage for her. Tell Bezikov to come. 
I'll put his name down. Is his wife with him? He asked. Anna Mikhailovna turned her eyes, turned up her eyes, and profound sadness was depicted on her face. Oh, my dear friend, he is very unfortunate, she said. It, if what we hear is true, it is dreadful. How little we dreamed of such a thing when we were rejoicing at his happiness. At such a lofty angelic soul as young Bezikov's, yes, I pity him from my heart and shall try to give him what a consolation I can. What's the matter? asked both the young and old Rostov. Anna Mikhailovna sighed deeply. Dolokhov, Mary Ivanovna's son, she said in a mysterious whisper, has compromised her completely, they say. Pierre took him up, invited him to his house in Petersburg, and now she has come here and that daredevil after her, said Anna Mikhailovna, wishing to show her sympathy for Pierre, but by involuntary intonations and a half-smile, betraying her sympathy for the daredevil, as she called Dolokhov. They say Pierre is quite broken by his misfortune. Dear, dear, but still tell him to come to the club. It will all blow over. It will be a tremendous banquet. Next day, the 3rd of March, soon after 1 o'clock, 250 members of the English club and 50 guests were awaiting the guest of honour and hero of the Austrian campaign, Prince Bagration, to dinner. On the first arrival of the news of the Battle of Austerlitz, Moscow had been bewildered. At that time, the Russians were so used to victories that on receiving news of the defeat, some would simply not believe it, while others sought some extraordinary explanation of so strange an event. In the English club, where all who were distinguished, important and well-informed foregathered, when the news began to arrive in December, nothing was said about the war and the last battle, as though all were in a conspiracy of silence. The men who set the tone in conversation, Count Rostopchin, Prince Yuri Dolgurukov, Valuev, Count Markov, and Prince Vyazemsky, did not show themselves at the club, but met in private houses in the intimate circles, and the Moscovites, who took their opinions from others, Ilya Rostov among them, remained for a while without any definite opinion on the subject of the war and without leaders. The Moscovites felt that something was wrong and that to discuss the bad news was difficult. And so it was best to be silent. But after a while, just as a jury comes out of its room, the bigwigs who guided the club's opinion reappeared and everybody began speaking clearly and definitely. Reasons were found for the incredible, unheard of and impossible event of a Russian defeat. Everything became clear, and in all corners of Moscow the same things began to be said. These reasons were the treachery of the Austrians, a, a defective commissariat, the treachery of the Pole Przebskowski, and of the Frenchman Langeron, Kutuzov's incapacity, and it was whispered the youth and inexperience of the sovereign who had trusted worthless and insignificant people. But the army, the Russian army, everyone declared was extraordinary and had achieved miracles of valour. The soldiers, officers, and generals were heroes, but the hero of heroes was Prince Bagration, distinguished by his Sean Gobrun affair and by the retreat from Austerlitz, where he alone had withdrawn his column unbroken and had all day beaten back an enemy force twice as numerous as his own. What also conduced to Bagration's being selected as Moscow's hero was the fact that he had no connections in the city and was a stranger there. In his person, honour was shown to a simple fighting Russian soldier without connections and intrigues, and to one who was associated by memories, 
of the Italian campaign with the name of Suvorov. Moreover, paying such honour to Bagration was the best way of expressing disapproval and dislike of Kutuzov. Had there been no Bagration, it would have been necessary to invent him, said the wit Shinshin, parodying the words of Voltaire. Kutuzov no one spoke of, except some who abused him in whispers, calling him a court weathercock or an old satyr. All Moscow repeated Prince Dolokhov's saying, If you go on modelling and modelling, you must get smeared with clay, suggesting consolation for our defeat by the memory of former victories, and the words of Rostopchin that French soldiers have to be incited to battle by highfalutin words, and Germans by logical arguments to show them that it is more dangerous to run away than to advance, but that Russian soldiers only need to be restrained and held back. On all sides, new and fresh anecdotes were heard of individual examples of heroism shown by our officers and men at Austerlitz. One had saved a standard, another had killed five Frenchmen, a third had loaded five cannons single-handedly. Berg was mentioned by those who did not know him as having, when wounded in the right hand, taken his sword in the left and gone forward. Of Bolkonsky nothing was said, and only those who knew him intimately regretted that he had died so young leaving a pregnant wife with his eccentric father. Ooh, what a kick in the pants that last line is. All right, everybody, have your say about that one over at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.